You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. And welcome to episode 12 of So You Want to Be a Writer. I'm Valerie Koo, and I'm here with the lovely Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm very, very well, thank you. What have you been up to this week? I've had a very, very busy week. I've been conducting some writing workshops at my local school, um, which has been a very interesting process. I think when you have to present the craft to people, some of whom are interested, most of whom are not, um, uh, about writing, um, it's a very, very good way to actually clarify all your thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's what I've been doing. And I have to say, I did three back-to-back yesterday. and. Wow. I, take my hat off to teachers. I don't know how they do it. They should be paid more. I don't know how they do it either. I was exhausted. Anyway, what about you? What have you been doing? Oh, it's been a busy week here at the Australian Writers' Centre. Let's see. I have been going through a lot of applications for a number of things. Firstly, applications for some of the positions we have available. So it's been really interesting to to look through that and hopefully we'll have some new members of our team soon. But also applications to our six-month Write Your Novel program. And that's very exciting because because, you know, we've run some of these six-month programs in the past and it's always great to see the outcome at the end of the six months and how far people have come, you know, in terms of writing their novel. And um, it's uh, exciting. So it's, yeah. an, it's an application process. It's not just I'm coming. It's you, you actually go through them all and have a look and see where people are up to. Yeah, in a sense, because it also depends on whether you've done a course with us before or not. Because uh, if you have done a course, we already know what you know, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So, um, and and obviously we encourage people who've, who've done some uh, introductory courses who then want to go on and write a longer work to, to consider the six-month program because you, you get with this cohort of people that you get to know really well, you become each other's writing buddies, you workshop yep. each other's work, and, it's a, yep. and, and a lot of them continue, you know, in their writing group even after the six-month program. Well, that's right. And you can't underestimate the importance of support. Oh, my God. Particularly yes. if you're tackling your first novel. Like, it's it's really, really important. It's vital. And the other thing that's made us really busy, of course, is that um, we've had a lot of attention as a result of the Best Australian Blogs competition. The winners have been announced and they're such a great group of winners, as you know, because you I are do. one of the judges. I was. And big congratulations goes to Christina Sung from the blog The Hungry Australian. And she um, wins a seven-night trip to Turkey, thanks to Trafalgar, so which you know, who are one of our competition sponsors. Um, she also wins a thousand dollars cash from Random House and a session with a Random House editor. So very excited for Christina. It is exciting, and Turkey as well. I love Turkey. I went there yes. like many years ago with a backpack and had a fantastic time. All I remember about the place is the food because it was so good. Oh yes, the food. Yes, the food. <laughs> and but moving on to what's been happening in the world of writing and blogging and publishing this week. Well, I came across a pretty interesting report uh, about the state of journalism. It was really more about journalism in um, America, but. Uh, it came to the conclusion that journalists are 
Miserable, liberal, overeducated, underpaid, middle-aged men. <laughs> Very right. similar to, um, uh, you know, the guy who Jeff Daniel plays in the newsroom, um, right. Will. Do you watch the newsroom, by the way? No, I don't, but clearly I should. Yeah, clearly you should. Mm. But um, this report basically uh, has discovered that they are more liberal, so four out of five of them are more likely to be Democrats. Um, Their job satisfaction isn't that great. They're older than you think because the median age has increased from 32 to 47 in the last three decades. Right. Uh, they're mostly guys, although that's slightly changing, because back in 1971, 79.7% were men, but now it's 62.5%, so it's balancing out a little bit. Mm. And they're also very, very highly educated. This is back in 1971, 58% of them had a college degree or university degree, and now 92% have a university degree. So it's kind of an interesting interesting report and we'll put a link in the show notes. They also make a number of other observations and insights, but we kind of don't fit in any of, the, any of those categories or maybe I'm kidding myself. Well, maybe we're not men. That's one big category. We're not fitting very well there. And I have to say I'm not miserable, so I'm not, no. you know, I don't fit there. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, I think, you know, with any kind of report, you can, um, you can probably look at it, I mean, it's only as, as strong as the respondents to the actual survey, et cetera. Yes. Um, I would say that the education aspect is probably because, you know, back in the day, you could get a cadetship and yep. you could work your way up through a newsroom that way, whereas um, now you pretty much need a um, a degree of some kind to be an editorial assistant. So, yep. um, and of course, you know, jobs are getting scarcer um, and as not, a lot of people are watching the industry changes and the industry changes are shrinking newsrooms mm. um, and changing, you know, methods of the way that people are getting their news and um, possibly not as many people are choosing to go into the field, which, you know, is a, is, is a, um, a fallout from that. So, mm. Yeah, life changes and so therefore the industry changes and so maybe the people who are still there are a certain type of person, I'm not sure. I mean, yes. you know, as I said, any report um, has to be looked at very closely because you need to look at the sources as well as everything else. And of course, these days, the application process to become a journalist is vastly different to, you know, what it was, say, 20 years ago <laughs> because these days, even in the latest crop of uh, cadets at Fairfax at the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, um, you know, I think they started this month or something, uh, but in their application process, one of the things that they had to do was record a YouTube video and put it on YouTube um, of themselves talking basically, you know, their application process. So that's something that never would have happened, you know, back in our day. <laughs> thank heavens. <laughs> yeah, thank heavens. Thank it's interesting because if you Google Fairfax cadetships in, on YouTube or, if, sorry, if you search on YouTube, um, all of these applications come up. You can actually view them because wow. they're all online for everyone to see. Um, but you came across a, a nice link this week on libraries. I did because, you know, I love libraries. I think libraries are so important on so many levels. Yeah. Just, you know, for a quiet space for 
as as kind of the keepers of books. I mean, our local library is fantastic. The children's librarian, particularly here, is amazing because she she knows her stuff. You know, I go in there and I say, oh, I need a new, I need a book for blah blah, and she pulls out three, and off we go, sort of thing. Um, but this particular article was on Ab- Atlas Obscura, and it was about the secret libraries of New York. Now, don't love you just love that? I just love it there straight away. Um, but it's beautiful. It's a very pictorial thing, and it's got a lot of different sorts of libraries that you know you may not even know exist um like there was one there that i thought would really appeal to you which was the kennel club library <laughs> about dogs the american kennel club library um there was one that i would just like to move into which was the harvard club of new york city which is one of those massive mm. walls lined with books ladders I, i've always wanted a ladder on my bookshelf. I just oh, felt that too. would be like a very important thing in my life. Um, and the Horticultural Society has a library, lots of different little libraries that maybe you wouldn't know about. And I um, I was trying to think about whether there were any in Sydney or Melbourne or anywhere like that. So if anybody knows of any secret libraries that we should know about, mm. please tell us, email us, let us know, let me find them because I, I would love to do a secret libraries of Sydney post on mm. my book. <laughs> What do you think? Did you have a quick look through those beautiful pictures? They're they're gorgeous and I too have always wanted a ladder and I too have always sort of fantasised that I would one day have this huge room that, um, you know, full of books and I used to cart my books around from, you know, shared house to shared house to shared house, never having such a room. Um, But, you know, one day it might happen. But, of course, with real estate prices, (laughs) the chances of having a huge room like that is uh, kind of slim. But it just occurred to me when you when you mentioned are there some secret libraries in you know in some of the cities I I don't know of that many however in um Melbourne in uh of the most unlikely places uh because in Melbourne there's the RACV in New South Wales it's called the NRMA yeah um but Oddly, and NRMA is an insurance company, as, as many of us know in Sydney. But in Victoria, they have the they have this thing called the RACV Club, which is a club really that was once related to the Royal Automotive, you know, mm-hmm. um, people who are really into cars. But um, they have an entire building in the city. They've also got the RACV Club Resort in Hillsville. They've got one somewhere near the Mornington Peninsula and there's a library in there. And oh. so if you're a member of the club, you can actually pop in there and there's free wireless and you can go to the library and it's actually really quite gorgeous. Um, and it's this unexpected thing that certainly people People in New South Wales wouldn't expect from the NRMA, <laughs> but oh. Victorians, I guess, approach their motoring a little bit differently. <laughs> <laughs> they take it seriously. Down yes, there. it's quite yeah, it's quite a gorgeous little library actually, right in the middle of the city in Burke Street. Um, yeah, but uh, another thing I came across this week, which I thought was rather fascinating, and we'll put a link in the show notes as well, was something called the Novelist. Now, nice. the Novelist is actually a computer game. Now, we're used to hearing things like Grand Grand Theft Auto or Assassin's Creed or Halo or whatever, and they're all, you know, like really shoot 'em up kind of save the world, let's kill some people kind of computer games or drive cars really fast. And um, this, the novelist, has been created by a uh, somebody who you know creates games who used to create those sorts of games but as he grew older and his lifestyle changed he wasn't as interested in the shoot 'em up 
kind of games. So now he's created a game where the main character in the game is Dan Kaplan and he is a novelist and he's come to a remote coastal home for the summer to complete his most important book so far. So it's very important that he completes his book. However, as he struggles with his book, his relationships with his wife, Linda, and his six-year-old son, Tommy, deteriorate. So <laughs> this game is about how to help him achieve work-life balance. I I, I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I guess I'm living that, so I don't probably need to play that game. But, um, yeah, I'm not quite sure how it would work. Like, he, you know, does he keep getting interrupted and he has to get up and then you lose points because he's not putting words on the page? Or yeah. I'm not quite sure. Or, you know, I he's... think maybe if there was a murderer stalking around the house and, you know, he had to escape that as well, that would make more sense. But um, I would like you to play the game and then I would like you to report back. <laughs> well, apparently he's assaulted not by a murderer but with a lot of guilt. So, for example, there's oh. a car, a toy car sitting in the corner. I've had a look. There's a toy car sitting in the corner with the wheel have fallen off because he hasn't had the time to assemble it for his six-year-old son oh. <laughs> and his six-year-old son is sitting there going I wish my dad would fix my car oh no is he no I can't I couldn't play the game the guilt would oh no <laughs> if you're living it you don't need to play it but anyway I'd, yeah. uh, if anyone wants to have a crack and get back to us on it that'd be great <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> so anyway that's fascinating I'm keen to have a go and um yeah I will report back fantastic um well, I've got some news. Well, mine is more of the – well, it is, you know, it is for – I guess it's not really a game, okay? So, no, there's no segue there, so we'll just go on, shall we? <laughs> um, I was looking around for some interesting writing craft, marketing book sort of area of our, of our podcast, and I actually came across via the Copyright Agency newsletter, which I get mm. – um, a, a new website that's been put together called readingaustralia.com.au and it's a it's a website that lists 200 Australian children's books that have been chosen for their um, their particular uh, what would you say um, achievement in um, putting together a great body of work for Australian children to read mm-hmm. and it features notes for teachers on these books so mm-hmm. primary secondary, um, there's notes there for teachers on on how these particular books fit the curriculum. Um, it's a kind of reading list of great works by Australian authors that, that could be included in the classroom. And the reason I mention it in this podcast is because I think that it would also be a great resource for writers of, of, of children's literature. If you're yep. interested in writing in this area, then it would be a great idea to have a look at what's worked before, why, read the notes for teachers, what are teachers looking for? Because um, if you're writing um, sort of in that middle grade or YA sort of area, um, getting your books into schools for some reason, if you can align them with the curriculum in some mm. way, you get them into kids' hands and that's essentially what you want. You want mm. kids, you're writing for kids, you want kids reading your books. So I just thought it was worth mentioning readingaustralia.com.au and we'll put it in the show notes um, because I think, uh, you know, it's a great resource for teachers, obviously, mm. but it's also a great resource for writers of children's mm. literature. Um, so, yeah. That, I find that I sort think. of thing fascinating because, you know, typically when I read, I want to read just for the experience and for pleasure. And I usually do that on the first round. But when I do read things like teacher's notes or, you know, the story behind the story kind of thing, it's a whole other level of appreciation. Absolutely. Um, and, and so, I, yeah, I recommend that people read it just out of interest, to be yes. honest. 
Fantastic. And speaking of reading out of interest, um, one of the uh, websites that I like to read regularly is, or or check out regularly, is a website called Writer Unboxed about the craft and business of fiction. And it's a it's a website that um, takes contributions from a lot of different writers. And it's a really great list of writers. It's really worth having a look at who's writing for this particular website. Um, but the the post that actually caught my attention this week was one by Sophie Masson, who is a prolific Australian author. Mm. And she has written a post called Today's Challenge, Staying Published. Mm. So her... Um, the point of her article is essentially that, you know, getting published is one thing and it's really difficult, but you can also self-publish these days. So in some ways, the actual act of publishing is not as difficult. Staying published, however, is a whole different ballgame. Um, turning um, a writing career into a sustainable money-earning career as a professional yeah. author um, has never been easy. Um, she's saying it's no easier now than it ever has been, and particularly given the turbulence that the publishing industry has been experiencing over the last few years. Now, it's a really, really worthwhile post, definitely worth having a read, but what really got me with this particular one was the comments. It mm. is definitely worth reading the comments. There's currently 19 responses there, many of them from um, established literary authors, um, sorry, established literary agents and authors who are put giving their perspective on this business of staying published. And I think that any um, anyone who wants to be a writer needs to aim at, yes, getting published, but they also need to aim at staying published. So it's worth reading that particular post and the comments. Mm. Do you read the comments on posts? I, I skim them, you know, and it depends on what comment, I mean, what uh, site it's on. There are certain sites where the comments I know are just going to be horrendous trolls. Of the, oh, absolutely. From moronic people. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, no, I don't even bother with those. But, uh, but yeah, I, I find it, particularly with this particular post, as you've mentioned, some of the commenters, I mean, they're awesome. They're just the big names in the industry. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, what is the secret to staying published then? What are some of the key things that that she, what are some of the key points that she makes in terms of staying published? Well, I think basically the thing that one of the, a couple of things that she makes, I mean, essentially it's really hard work. And yeah. I think that that's something that people need to realise. I, I, a lot of people, I think, think that they're going to write one best-selling book and that's going to be them done for life. But at the end of the day, most most authors I know, most people who are working professionally in the area are working so hard and they're writing, you know, one, two books a year sometimes, yep. um, even more, you know, it's, so it's it's that. So it's kind of like you've got to, you've got to be willing to persist. You've got to work really, really hard. Um she makes the point that you can't expect too much of social media. Um, she mm. she feels that a lot of people are pinning a lot of their marketing and promotion hopes on social media and not doing the old hard yard stuff of going out to meet people, mm. of doing library talks, of of um, doing book signings, of, of that sort of stuff. You know where where that's possible. Um, and also this uh, this business of, you know, you have to be willing to learn new skills. You have to, you can't just go, well, this is what I've done. This is what I've always done. Yeah. And so therefore, this is how I will go on forevermore, you know. Um, and one of the points that does come out in the comments as well as, as in the post is that small publishers can be, um, can be a very, very good way of staying published because they will stick 
potentially with you longer than a big publisher where you might get lost in the mid list yeah. and, you know, they have a, a much higher turnover of staff often. Um, and, you know, if you have a great relationship with an editor and then that editor leaves, um, mm-hmm. it can often be very difficult to get your babies, get your books back into a home there. So yeah. um, there's, there's a lot of really good advice in it, you know, thinking strategically about where you might write. And uh, there, there are authors here who talk, you know, quite openly about the fact that they will write across lots of different levels of fiction. They're doing yep. adult fiction. They're doing YA. They're doing middle grade. You don't have to – I think the days of writing one thing are mm. maybe gone mm. um, and that's something that, that does come out in the comments as well. So, that, that I mean, that's that's the kind of basis of that. I mean, have you got any thoughts on staying published? I think you need to be strategic about it. I think that, you know, as you've mentioned, it's not just about, oh, I'm going to write this great tome and it's my creativity that's going to shine through and people are going to recognise my wonderful artistic genius. It's it is that, but it's also you need to treat it as a business because that's essentially what's happening when you're an author. You're uh, you're essentially your own business, and if you if you need you need to plan and you need to be strategic, not only in your creative output but also in your marketing and also in your positioning. So. And too often people ignore that that's not actually a hard process. It's something that, you know, you just need to sit down and have a think about and not overthink it either. It's just so that you have some structure and plan. Yeah, and it's. I, I think a lot of people, I mean, it, it's very like the the creative side. Writers, you know, are, are essentially creative beings who sit down and do their stuff and I think a lot of them find it very difficult or feel like they're somehow sullying their creativity mm. by considering the business side of things. Um, but you, you can't maintain a career. You can't maintain a career in freelancing. You can't maintain a career as a fiction author or any sort of thing without considering the fact that, that you've got to make money, unfortunately. Yeah. And those people who think that they're sullying their creative side, creative side are simply using it, that as an excuse. It's not <laughs> hard. It is not hard. Oh, <laughs> and wow. if you and if you want to succeed, you need to give thought to both sides of it. It's it's as simple as that. <laughs> but anyway, let's move I on to who spoken. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who is our writer in residence this week? Well, our writer in residence is an incredibly creative being and it's very, very exciting. We've got Fiona McFarlane um, as our writer in residence today and she of course is the author of The Night Guest which has appeared on so many awards and prizes lists and short lists and long lists and who knows what um, this year. It's very exciting and she's also um, will be the writer in residence at this year's Sydney Writers Festival so it's very exciting to have her have her on board and um, we'll put the links to all her bits and pieces in the show notes but for the time being here she is. Fiona McFarlane has a writing pedigree that includes degrees in English from Sydney University and Cambridge University and an MFA from the University of Texas at Austin. Her debut novel, The Night Guest, sold into 15 territories around the world and has been shortlisted for many prizes and awards, including the Stella Prize, the LA Times Debut Fiction Award, the Indie Awards and the 2014 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. It has also been long-listed for the Miles Franklin Literary Award which is a very long and impressive list. So hi, Fiona. It's great to talk to you today. Hi, Alison. Um, so you're on all those award lists. It must be so exciting. Like, did you imagine when you typed the end that the night guest would be so well received? 
No, no, I, I mean, it's it's obviously, it's absolutely delightful. It was, um, I was at the Stella ceremony on Tuesday night and one of the things Claire Wright said immediately is nobody writes books to win prizes, which is so true, but it's really, really nice to get the recognition. And I think when I was writing the book, you know, I was thinking, well, here I am writing this book about an elderly woman and who, who, I mean, there's about two and a half characters in the whole book. It didn't really occur to me. I wasn't thinking about audience at the time or if I was it was in a really general way I was writing the kind of book that I like to read and so I wasn't I wasn't thinking all right this is definitely going to get me onto prize lists but it's very nice to be there. Okay so it's not like that thing you know I often wonder you know when they write a hit song if they know it's a hit when they get to the end of it you know so you don't have that feeling of like oh this is great do you just have that author feeling of geez I hope someone likes this yeah I think I think writers are generally just so plagued with self-doubt but, and by the time you finish something you really you have very little idea well I certainly have very little idea what I've just done and what I've achieved and or not achieved and that's why you need editors and readers to come in and chat with you about what you've actually just done Okay. So how did you come to write the book? As you said, there's about two and a half characters, you know, it's a, it's an elderly woman's perspective. Like, is it, was it one of those ideas that sort of popped into your head out of the blue? Was it something that you've been thinking about for a while? Or was there an experience in your life that brought it on? Like, where did it come from? It came from a whole lot of different places. The first sort of recognisable one was a conversation I was having with a friend who I studied with who was um, doing some research on Victorian children's literature. And we were just having a chat about this, about all of those nursery rhymes and cautionary tales that Victorians used to use to terrify their children. And (laughs) They did, didn't they? They did. And she mentioned how many wild animals appear in in these tales and and rhymes and you know all of them colonial sort of animals so lions and elephants and crocodiles and particularly tigers so I just got interested in the idea of you know this very safe space of the British Victorian nursery being unsettled by these colonial animals that that are creeping in and, and they're both terrifying and thrilling at the same time so I thought well what if one day I write something with you know a modern house that's sort of safe and privileged but is also being sort of unsettled by some kind of nursery tiger that has some connection to the colonial. So there was that. (laughs) um, But then, you know, there were, there were other, other things as well. I heard a story from my mum about a friend of hers whose, whose father's cleaner had convinced him they were married and, um, you know, tried to sort of move in and all this, all this sort of stuff. And I mean, you hear stories about, about vulnerable elderly people being taken advantage of all too often. So, at some point, those two ideas merged and became the Nightcast, but I couldn't exactly tell you when that was. Okay, so what, how do you, can you describe your writing process? Like how, how long did it take you to write this book to the point where you thought it was finished? Yes, it's a good, there's a good distinction when I think it's finished and when, yes. when someone else does. Yes. Um, so it took about two years to write the first draft, so the first, which isn't to say that I, I sat down and wrote something um, – and didn't revise it at all as I was going. I was revising all the time, but it took about two years to write something that read from beginning to end. And I didn't necessarily think it was finished then, but I felt like it was more finished than it turned out to be. And I, <laughs> I sent it off to my agent and, you know, and got great feedback from her and ended up spending another two years revising it before we then sent it out to publishers and then went through the editorial process with them. 
Okay, so you already had an agent at that point. Like, how did you? How did that come about? It's sort of a fairy tale, honestly. It's, oh, I, really fabulous. I, I, kind I, love of, those. I love telling this story because I think it's, I think it's really heartening and and great. Um, so I I met her um, ten years before I finished the book. So she waited ten years for me to write a book. I think I made her about eighty dollars in that decade. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so what happened was that I had just moved to England, and before I before I left home, I used to enter a lot of competitions, a lot of writing competitions with my stories and had had some success. And so when I got to England, I thought I'm going to do that again. And so I entered a competition. It was run by one of the big glossy magazines. I kind of remember which one now. And I just got a letter out of the blue saying, a friend of mine was a reader for this competition, which I didn't win, I might add. Okay. <laughs> um, a friend of mine was a reader for this competition and she loved your story and thought I would like like it too. Do you think you could send it to me? And it was from, um, it was from an agent. I mean, she was actually the head of quite a, a prestigious agency in London. So I said yes and sent okay. it. She wrote back saying, "I love the story. Next time you're in London, please, um, yeah, let's meet and have a chat." And I, of course, invented a reason to be in London immediately. <laughs> And, you know, within three minutes and went down and met her and just really liked her. We just really clicked and she, you know, we just sort of chatted about my work and there was no pressure, you know, you have to write something right now or anything. It was definitely always this sense I had that she was interested in me and um, my career and what I might produce in the future. And yeah, she was incredibly patient. She was great. She sent short stories out and it was through her that I got some really good publications, but um, yeah, she waited 10 years for me to write. That's write, amazing. That is a fairy tale. You're it is. Right. And with such a happy ending. Yes, with such Which a happy love. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so the, she um, she read The Night Guest, gave you feedback, and then it's, she has therefore then gone out and sent it out to all the publishers for you at that point? Yeah, that's right. Right. Okay. That's So you're not someone then who, who sort of like has spent five years building an author platform or branding yourself or anything like that up until the point of publication this is not something that you thought about you were right you were sort of busy writing the book yeah I was definitely I've just def- I mean I think that for me writing is is enough is enough work it's, it's all consuming to not um think too much about sort of branding and social platforms and things and it's possibly naive of me I think Things have worked out very well for me. I think I got some high-profile publications in magazines before the novel came out, which right. certainly helped the sense that there were people waiting to see it. Right. And I think that was incredibly important. But, yeah, I mean, I, I've had to sort of been be prodded into having a Facebook page for me as a writer, you know, a, a professional okay. Facebook page. So I'm really not the person to to sort of give advice on that. But I know other people who are really good at it, who love it, who are excellent at engaging with their readers and with the literary world at large. And, you know, and I'm all for that because I think, you know, great conversations get opened up. But for me personally, it's not, it's just not really my style. Okay. So are, are you sort of like, do you do any sort of stuff to get your book out there? Are you doing, um, I mean, obviously you're talking to me, which is clearly <laughs> clearly a fabulous thing, but um, are you doing, uh, like, a, uh, do you enjoy sort of like book talks or are you doing, you know, writers' festivals? What sort of stuff, you know, would you do you prefer to focus on? 
Yeah, and I'm doing festivals. Um, I've done quite a few. I'm going to be the writer in residence at the Sydney Writers Festival next month. So that's so exciting. Yeah, that'll be great. So I just get to go to everything and so, so lucky and then talk about it. Um, <laughs> Fantastic. So that's that's great. Um, yeah, and I've you know sort of done book groups. I've done a lot of interviews. I've gotten to travel, which has been really nice. And the lovely thing about being with a publisher like Penguin is that they really organise a great deal of it for you. So that suits someone like me who, um, if left to my own devices, would probably just be curled up in my house reading a book. Right. <laughs> but, I, but I really enjoy doing it. I mean, it's yeah. it's fun. I had a wonderful time at the Adelaide Writers' Festival recently. It's great to meet people who've read the book and have fantastic questions about it. It's great to meet other writers and make those connections with people who are doing the same preposterous thing you are. So, yeah, I love all of that. And do you find, um, like, with those, because, I mean, I think with any book, whether, you, whether you're whether sort of, like, doing your own publicity or, or, or as you say, having it organised for you or whatever you're doing, there there is a time component to that, isn't there? Like, are you finding that you're getting writing done still? Like, are you working on something new? I am, yeah. I think I was very, very fortunate in that when I sold The Night Guest, I also sold a collection of short stories, which was great. And I had I had nearly, I was very close, I sort of 75% finished writing that. So I was writing the stories at the same time as the novel. So I had an existing project that I could just sort of head back into. And I think that's been really important for me, especially because it's stories, I think, you're dealing with such concentrated worlds and you can sort of step in and out of them a little more easily than you can a novel. Yeah. So I've felt like I can keep writing them or working on them around everything else that's been going on. So I'm really pleased it worked out that way. Oh, that is fantastic. And it must be also reassuring, like having that work already in progress, being almost there with it, um, like being in contention for so many awards and prizes is amazing, but it would also bring, I think, if you were starting from scratch right now, some pressure for your next novel. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. I think it would. I think it still will. Um, I know, <laughs> I know what, what I want my next novel to be to be about and I'm thinking about it. I'm researching it already and I'm really, really excited about working on it. But it will. I will definitely need to to try and put all of that um you know, put all of it away as I'm working. And I think once I get into it, I'll be able to. Um, you have to be good, I think, at, at sort of shutting out distractions like that. And they're wonderful distractions, they're lovely distractions, but you still need to sit down, you know, with your brain and and words yes. and, and write and try not to think about that stuff at all. And will you, the other thing I guess that may come with your next novel as well is a, will you have a deadline? Like did you... Because with the night guest, I'm assuming there was no deadline to it. So, um, like with with a another uh, publication, will you be having to sort of hit some kind of mythical date? <laughs> In which case, is that scary? <laughs> well, I mean, it is interesting how many people give you advice about how long the the maximum amount of time you should wait until you bring out your next novel, which is terrifying because um, it took me a lot longer to write the night guest. So. Yes. Um, Nobody, I mean, nobody's actually, I think, going to give me a deadline unless I um, sell a partial manuscript, which okay. psychologically I think I'm, um, <laughs> I would be best avoided for me, but um, <laughs> I think it would. Par- paralysis I, would ensue. <laughs> I have a feeling it might. Um, you never know. I mean, I, I respond well to deadlines, so perhaps, perhaps it would be great, but um, that's a problem that I'll 
But I, I'll see if I'm lucky enough to worry about that problem. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about this term literary fiction because that's generally where your book is placed. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you define it? Is there a genre, so to speak, or is there a, you know, like what is the definition of literary fiction, do you think? And did you set out to write that? Sure. I think literary fiction is such an elastic term. In so many ways it just encompasses anything that's not part of a, of a more rigid genre like sci-fi or, or that chick lit, that horrible word. Um, I think I think that at the same time there are so many genres that are part of literary fiction. I mean, I think the best books are playing with more than one genre at the same time. So, you know, you can have literary fiction that's, that's also a thriller or you can have um, – you know, supernatural elements to it, of course. I think that for me, I just set out to write a good book, the kind of book I like to read. And I'm drawn to books that are interested in more than just sort of plot and story and keeping pages turning, though I think those things are really important and that we're narrative animals and there's a reason we love reading books like that. But I love to read books that are interested in ideas and interested in language that aren't necessarily entirely for for entertainment but like to be sort of sneaky about expanding worldviews and things like that at the same time. And I think that's what literary fiction does. I think that it can be an elitist term, which is a shame. I think people should just read books they enjoy and, and get something out of. And, you know, I think... I don't think that I or any of my other friends or writers I admire sit down thinking, ah, now to write literature. (laughs) But, you know, I think that there is a great love of what language is capable of going on when people sit down to write the kind of books that end up being marketed as literary fiction. So are you the kind of writer that will spend, you know, a long time on one sentence just to make sure that it's absolutely, you know, perfect? Yeah, yeah, I definitely am. I mean, maybe not, maybe not initially. Um, I'm not necessarily someone who'll who'll sit there and sort of stare at the same sentence all day if I'm working on a first draft. But I revise a lot. I think okay. revision is an enormous part of the writer's work, and uh, so I'll spend a lot of time going back over sentences later. Okay. So if you, like, for example, I know, know that you said, you know, you got the book to where you thought it was finished and then it went into the publishing process and then, of course, you find out that it's not as finished as you thought. Um, but how many drafts would you imagine that you did on The Night Guest before you got to the point where you were happy to go, I'm ready to send this out? Uh, it's, it's hard to say because, um, you know, there are parts of it that I probably redrafted 25 times and other parts that, that I probably revised three times so it's difficult to say in my in sort of the narrative I have invented of the process in my brain um there were two major um revisions before oh maybe maybe three major revisions before we sent it to publishers and then you know once it entered that process you know you could consider that one other draft I suppose but but saying four draft but there were four drafts of it before it it was printed would be completely false (laughs) (laughs) because as I said I mean there are parts of it that I just changed so many times and other things that stayed pretty close to what I first wrote so 
Okay. So if um, if I was to ask you for your, we're going to get into the advice section of our interview right now, mm-hmm. um, just flagging that for you. Um, if I was going to ask you for your three top tips for, for writers, like what, what would they be? What, what are the three main pieces of advice that you find yourself giving over and over again? Um, okay. I think... Well, the first one, the first one, and it's an obvious one, is just is to read, to read everything, um, to always be reading, and to don't let your reading frighten you, let it excite and inspire you. The second one, and maybe it's my third one as well, because I think this one is so important, um, and the one that I wish I had listened to more was is to be patient, to be patient with yourself and patient with your work. Don't hurry, don't rush, don't compare yourself to other people. Don't think so-and-so has brought out a book. This person's, you know, just had something accepted. Just remain in your work and give it the time it needs. But at the same time, work hard. This is, okay, this is the third bit. I mean, work hard, work steadfastly, um, figure out the ways that mean you will write every day because that's how you write a novel is to make yourself actually produce words and, yeah rather than just talking about producing words. Yes. <laughs> Which is so much more fun, don't it you think? Is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Fiona, thank you so much for talking to us today. Now, if our listeners um, are looking for you, where can we find out more about you? Oh, uh, you can find you can find me on the Penguin website. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I do there is a Fiona McFarlane Author of the Night Guest Facebook page that, that you can discover as well. Okay. And I will put links to both of those in our show notes so thank you once again and good luck with all those additional prizes and things coming your way and have a fantastic time at the sydney writers festival i will thanks allison it's a great interview al yeah it was it was great she was so um so interesting to talk to and i think generous with her answers and i found our i I always find the with a literary author the conversation about the branding and the author platform to be really interesting Mm. um i had a conversation uh of well uh, i did a q a on my blog a little while ago with charlotte wood who of course is another australia's you know um great literary authors and she she basically branded um uh branding as junk a bit like history is, you know, history is junk. <laughs> um, and it was a really interesting conversation. Like her, her take was, you know, you write the best book that you can and that's what you do. And um, and I think that, you know, when you're looking at an author like that, you, it's hard to argue because they write fantastic books and yes. out they go yes. and they win prizes. And you think, <laughs> okay, that's all I need to do. So anyway, it's always really, really good to get, I think, both sides of that conversation going. Do you, what do you think? Do you think that branding is junk? Um, I don't think it is. I think particularly for people who are unpublished and who are trying to find a way into the publishing industry, mm. I think that it's really important to have some kind of profile these days because mm. um, it's so hard to stand out. You know, you, you yep. have um, you have so many people putting books out there. I mean, there's, you know, I don't know, I can't remember exactly, but I think it's something like 50,000 books uploaded to Amazon every day. Yeah. That's a lot of books. So yep. I, think, I think if you want to give yourself the best possible chance – um, and I, I remember a conversation I had on a panel with a publisher who said basically that if they had two fantastic books and one of those people had some kind of platform or profile, yep. they would go with the they would go with that one. Yep. So I think you know, yes, you write the best book you can because that's the most important thing. You have to write an amazing book, mm. but you know, there's no harm in putting a little bit of sauce on that. Yeah, and it's you know, quite frankly, it's very easy to say that branding is junk when you've already got a brand. 
Well, yeah, but then she came from nowhere with it too, didn't she? Like, I mean, she started out with a book that no one knew about and she's now Charlotte Wood and we yeah. all know what Charlotte Wood means. But yeah. I I think it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's a difficult, a difficult question. I think it's a, it's a question that every author has to wrestle with in their own way yeah. and I think every author has to decide how much time and effort they want to put into that stuff um, as well because it can be a time suck and that's sure. something that other people need, that people do need to think about. Okay, well, let's move on to something that we were discussing earlier, actually, um, before the podcast, and that was about when, you know, your friends ask you to critique your writing or if you've been asked to critique the writing of somebody that you kind of know and, you know, what's, what's, uh, what happens there? You found a post on this. I did find a post on this. Writer's Digest, um, which is another great resource for writers, has a post called How to Critique Friends' Writing, and it's written um, from the perspective of if you're a fellow writer and somebody asks you to critique their work, what do you say and how do you go about it? And then there's also, um, and I think that this is a situation that a lot of editors would find themselves in, where people ask them to edit their work for them. And, of Mm. course, with a friend, it's, you know, they want it done for nothing. And (laughs) it's just what you do in your whole, you know, you get paid good money to do this for other people. How do you kind of deal with that situation? Mm. now, I, I think it's a, it's a difficult thing. I, I generally tend to – I do get a lot of – I do get a lot of requests to read people's stuff and give them feedback. They're not necessarily asking me to give them detailed edits or anything like that, but they want me to give them feedback. And um, I have to say that most of the time now I say no. Right. Which is kind of, you know, sounds very – very difficult of me but I have a critique group that I work with a group of writers and we we have set boundaries we work backwards and forwards with each other um we we know what the expectation is if we if somebody has asked to you know asked us to read then we know what what the expectation is and that's basically I work within that um I I get random emails from someone whose mum is a friend of someone who worked at you know, once worked at the takeaway shop where someone else works. Um, and I do get those emails. And um, <laughs> I basically have to say, look, I'm so sorry. I'm writing three novels myself this year and I yeah. unfortunately don't have time to read, which I don't mm. because reading takes a lot of time. Oh, yeah. And if you want to actually give somebody useful feedback, then that takes a lot of time. And then, of course, you're always in the problem of, particularly if it's a friend, do they actually want your useful feedback? Yeah. Or do they just want you to tell you it's great? Yeah. And that's that's often a difficult situation. But do you get asked and what do you say? Oh, look, I used to get asked a lot more often than I do now. And I think that could potentially be because um, I I was asked – uh, one of the situations was a friend of a friend, you know, and they asked me to critique a manuscript. And I do nonfiction, as you know. my That's my area of specialty. So this person um, wrote a nonfiction manuscript and I said I would do this as a favour to my friend who was an agent. And um, I, you know, sat down one weekend and I could just feel myself getting angrier and angrier and at the – the contents of this manuscript, not at the writing style, but at the um, at the actual concepts being written about, and I could see my red pen, my my writing handwriting, actually getting scraggier and scraggier because I was writing so fast. I was so cranky at the things that he was saying. Oh no! <laughs> and, oh dear! <laughs> because um, you know, it was written by a um, gentleman of um, you know, uh, a highly educated man, um, probably 
a generation older than us perhaps and it was about how to succeed in life and, you know, having good time management. And uh, he was saying that how he wrote the manuscript on a he, – he, he used his time very effectively and he wrote that book on a 13-hour flight from LA to Sydney. <gasps> Um, and he okay. wrote that in the manuscript and I thought, okay, well, if you think that that's all it takes to write a good book, this, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually getting cranky now at my friend who recommended me that <laughs> for, oh, to read no. this. And the key, the key to success is making sure you have a good wife. Oh. Oh, no. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. I went, Did you throw it against the wall oh, at that point? Oh, the red pen just went crazy at that point. And the poor man, I did, re- you know, return the manuscript to him because I did what I said I would do. Um, and uh, I remember remember giving it, to, dropping it off at Chatswood or wherever it was and I never heard from him again. Oh, no. <laughs> well, I, I reckon, I, I remember when I was first kind of really getting into blogging and tweeting and stuff like that, I, and I came across a and this – this has stuck with me for four years. So this is why I'm going to share this and I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. I read a post and it was written in 2009. Mm. And so I would have come across it, you know, around about 2010, probably early 2010. And it was called, I will not read your effing script. <laughs> and it was written by a playwright and he's pretty famous and I can't exactly remember. Oh, there you go. Uh, Josh Olson, screenwriter, Josh Olson. Mm-hmm. And it was a long and involved story, blog post about why why he will not read your script mm-hmm. and it is really worth reading if you are um if you are a writer you want to be a writer you're considering you know trying to get someone to have a look at your work mm-hmm. please read it first before making the decision about who to send your work to or who to ask to look at it because it is really um it's quite straight to the point there's a little bit of language in it I'll just warn you about that <laughs> but uh, honestly, I, honest, I read it four years ago and it comes to mind straight away. As soon as I start talking about critiquing work, this I, I think of this post and so yep. it's worth reading. So I put the, um, I'll put the um, link in the show notes. Wow. Well, and I will add though, before I scare anyone off, this Ooh. isn't a blanket thing saying I won't read anything. This is more a do your homework before you send stuff to people yep. Yep. because if you had done your homework, if you'd done, say, any of our courses, you would know that 13 hours does not make a good book. No, that's right. So it's more do your homework before you actually make someone invest their time. Well, that's right. Anyway. Oh, goodness me. Yes. Didn't that come up? Um, (laughs) And there are are some very good points in that original post we talked about. If if you are going to work with a friend, if you are going to read a friend, it gives you some great tips around how to actually um, do the critique and how to approach it and and that Mm. sort of stuff. So it's worth having a look at that original post as well. Mm. Um, I, I remember giving a, many, many years ago, giving a friend of mine some raw writing and just watching the look on her face kind of says it, said it all at the time. And, and, and then I kind of realised, yep, I need to actually polish this a lot more before I start giving it to readers. Anyway, let's move on to uh, our app pick for the week. And... Um, I decided. What, what is our app pick for the week? Yes, well, I decided to talk about Dragon Dictate because a lot oh. of people often ask me whether, you know, I use such speech to text software. And um, Dragon Dictate is a piece of software uh, that um, you, you, you know, you install it on your computer and you basically talk into your, the computer microphone and it converts your speech to text. Right. Have you ever used it? No. 
Okay, so it's kind of fun. And the thing is, you need to train it originally when you first start. So you start uh, reading a few of the, you know, pre-programmed um, passages so that it gets to understand your accent and gets to understand your little quirks. And um, and then it, it kind of modifies itself so that it wow. tries to recognize you. So um, I use it to varying levels of success. Um, <laughs> Depending on how tired I am that day or how articulate I am that day, usually it's pretty good, but occasionally it will struggle and it does struggle with Australian Writers Centre because sometimes it would say a strain on a Writers Centre. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a whole different world. Yes, because I think that people... Uh, you know, makers of these platforms cater really well to a US accent and cater really well to a British accent, but it's slightly different in Australia. I remember, you know, in my previous car, when I used to give the car directions, it it would never understand me. So I would channel a middle-aged British man and I would speak (laughs) like that and the car would understand me. I can just see you sitting there. <laughs> I'm going to be George now. <laughs> exactly. But it brings me to a nice story about a friend of mine, Kathy, who recently got um, Google Glass, you know, the, the, yeah, yeah. the glasses that you can wear and you can give it commands and you can get it to take photos and stuff like that. So, and you can make it, you know, post to Instagram. So she took a photo on Australia Day and um, and she posted it to Instagram and she told Google Glass to post Happy Australia Day. And Google Glass heard what it heard and it and posted it to Instagram, I hope you all die. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. Yeah. So you oh, just no. you gotta get used to things like Dragon Dictate and make sure you you check things carefully, of course. But if you're on I find that if I'm on a roll, like really know what I'm I want to get out what I'm about to say then um it, it can be quite effective because it's do you saves use it for what do you use it for do you use it for emails and business letters or do you use it for I mean I, to, I can't imagine like I when I'm writing I I'm not even thinking half the time it's yep. just sort of like there's some kind of channel going from my brain straight to my fingertips and I read it back later and I think wow I wonder where that came from <laughs> so no seriously um, but I can't imagine – so I can't imagine speaking an entire book. Like I know Barbara yep. Cartland, I believe, had an assistant that used to sit by her bed while she wore her feather boa <laughs> and she used to dictate her romance novels and the assistant used to write them down. So like the old-fashioned dragon yep. dictate, used to write them down and then type them up for her. Um, but I, I can't imagine getting my thought processes together enough to actually do that. So what what are you using it for? What are you writing on it? Well, in a sense, Dragon Dictate is like the feather boa for new, you know, today's <laughs> authors. Um, and I do use it for some emails and um, business documents. However, when it comes to writing, it's true. If you're still formulating your ideas, I absolutely need to put my fingers to the keyboard because it's actually, it's exactly what you say. It's it, it, you're, it's still formulating your brain. It just sort of comes out. That's and, right. and you need that process for it to come out. However, if I already know what's going to come out and I I'm, as I say, when I'm on a roll and I kind of actually want to just go spew kind of thing, yeah. I, I can use it for that. But if I'm still structuring or if I'm still wondering about sentence, um, you know, or the, the, the order of words in sentences, it, it, it can't work for that. But mm. if I'm just downloading information and then I can kind of fix it later, it's great for that. 
Okay. So it's like the it's like a true vomit draft. You really it's just coming straight out of your mouth. <laughs> Pretty much. Vomit draft with a feather boa. Absolutely. So that brings us to that's probably a good note. That's to a end. good note to end on, I think. Yep. Definitely. Our podcast this week. What are you up to this week? What's coming up for you? Oh well excitingly I've I'm working on the copy edit of book one of my children's series. Woo-hoo. And um, I have finished um, the draft of uh, book two. It's gone off to my publisher. And so pretty much I'm going to just be sitting around nervously awaiting feedback on that. Yeah. <laughs> that's going to take up a fair bit of my brain space. So yeah, so that's what I'm up to. And what about you? What are you doing with yourself? Uh, well, I'll be reading something with a difference this week. Well, as I mentioned, um, I'll be reading through applications for some of the positions at of the course. Australian Writers' Centre. So that will be um, quite fun because we've got quite a number of high quality candidates. So who knows, by next week, I might have some new members of the team. Fantastic. But in the meantime, where can we find you, Al? You can find me at alisontate.com. And where can we find you, Val? ValerieKoo.com. But also, if you want to find the show notes of this podcast, it's at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast. And please do send us your comments and your feedback or any topics that you would like covered in the show to podcast at writerscentre.com.au. We've received quite a number of emails already and we are covering most of the things that you've requested over the next, you know, over the coming weeks. Yeah. Uh, and also we would love it if you could leave us a, a rating and a review on iTunes. That certainly helps us with our um, with our rankings. And thank you to everyone who's been listening for your support because this week we reached number 13 out of all podcasts in Australia. So really appreciate that. It's, just, it's like countdown, isn't it? Like it's <laughs> like, you know, we just need a bullet and we're going to be there. I can't wait. It's exciting. That's right. So until next time, thanks for listening, everyone. Goodbye. Bye.